It's game back on for a one-of-a-kind indie arcade gallery and bar in Brooklyn. Wonderville is now open again after shutting down amidst the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm George Bodarkey, and this is Cityscape. On this week's show, we'll plug into the history of Wonderville with a creative couple who brought the concept to life. I was interested in having a place that people can go to play games, but also showcase new games by people that are making new arcade games. But first, t-shirt weather will be here before you know it. And one New York City shop likes to keep things old school when it comes to the tea. Metropolis Vintage is known for its collection of vintage concert and band t-shirts. Richard Colligan is the owner. He joins me now to talk about the history of the shop, how it's been managing in the pandemic, and of course, their t-shirts. Richard, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. Great. So how is life in the pandemic right now? How is business during the pandemic? Well, to tell you the truth, um, you know, obviously we had to close down for three months, but we were allowed to reopen uh, at, uh, on July 1st or somewhere the first week in July. And, um, you know, our New York business returned very quickly, our local business. But, you know, being that we're a retail business in Manhattan, you know, uh, there's no tourism. And that's been the biggest um, um, missing item to try to recover from because, you know, that was uh, about 30, 40% of my business uh, retail wise. And um, that obviously, you know, hasn't come back. But our business from the New York metropolitan area and from the New York City has been absolutely fine. It came back with a, an abandon, but I don't have any tourism business. It's zero. And that's been the biggest challenge. I mean, obviously, right now, you know, we're doing, trying to do more online and uh, it's helped, but it's very difficult to replace that tourism business from online for, for an online business. You sell on Etsy, right? Well, yes, that's our we use the Etsy platform. We've been using it for a very long time. And uh, so we use Etsy for our retail business. Yes. I mean, for our Internet sales. Yes. Can you give me a history of Metropolis Vintage? Oh, sure. Um, you know, uh, I graduated, I mean, from, you know, Queens and uh, I went to uh, Pratt Institute. I graduated graphic designer in 1982. And, uh, you know, around that same time, we had a very, there was a very large recession and, you know, people, I mean, companies weren't hiring full-time graphic designers and I was doing freelance mostly. And um, my uncle, who was in the vintage clothing business, suggested, oh, you can go out and find some of this clothing and can make some money. And uh, so I went out and I found some items to sell and I went to the flea market and I made like, I don't know, thousand dollars or something. And it was like a miracle. It's like, oh my God, so much money in the early eighties. And uh, from there, then I, so I actually, so I started full time doing the business in 1984 in the flea markets. There was a flea market down in um, Soho on green and canal. I don't know if you remember it. It was, um, uh, you know, sort of a Soho downtown hip kind of flea market. It was a lot, a lot of fun. And that's where I started. And we're selling in the flea market in the Green Street, Green and Canal. It's, I think they finally built the building there. <laughs> it was an empty parking lot. And that's where he started. And then I worked in, in flea markets, at Columbus Avenue flea market, street fairs, uh, 23rd Street flea market, whatever there was a place to sell in Manhattan. And then finally decided to open a store. And that was 1990. And we opened up at, uh, on Avenue B. 
between seventh and eighth, between sixth and seventh street on Avenue B. And then we moved to third Avenue a few years later. And then a couple of years, then the, two years ago, we moved over here on Broadway and 11th street. So slow progression, you know, starting in the flea markets, then, then going to a store and, you know, a cheap rent. The rent was a thousand dollars. Can you believe that? Huh? A thousand dollars. Yeah. On Avenue B. Yeah, that was a real trip. You know, it was still Drug City then. Um, very, it was very bad. It was very sad at the time. Uh, yeah, there was a crime, but not a, you know, not crazy, but there was a lot of drugs, a lot of drugs. But, uh, you know, I, we felt that we needed a better location, you know, for sales. So a place came up on 3rd Avenue and 10th Street. And, uh, and the NYU building, uh, uh, it's a dormitory building. And it was very, you know, it was a good location to tell you the truth because it kept, it's always kept me very young because Third Avenue is a dormitory area. And uh, there's a lot of dormitories. There's NYU, there's uh, SU, all the different schools have dormitories there. And uh, so every year there's a new group of young students and then there's East Village people and artists and musicians, whatever. So I always had to keep young, you know, I didn't grow, like I didn't, I have to constantly change my merchandise to sell to young people, you know? So it, kept, it keeps me young, <laughs> being in the East Village. Who is your typical shopper? Well, um, I would say that it's um, a, any young person from the ages of about 16 to 35. And um, when we first started, it was mostly like white kids, you know, like they were like the, the kids that would wear vintage. But in the last like 10 years or so, especially now, you know, a, a lot of black and Hispanic kids just love vintage clothing now, especially from the 90s. So that they've now become like, what would you say? About 70% of the business? Yeah, about 70% of our retail business, retail, not um, the, re the local retail business, not our, I don't know about online, that's hard to tell, but uh, that's been the biggest change in the vintage business is that um, a lot of uh, African-Americans and Hispanic people just love vintage clothing. Cause you know, I don't know if you remember uh, in the nineties, there was a lot of African-American clothing companies came into existence and they, they brought in a lot of colors and big sizes and style. And a lot of that was, you know, and then the, the style of the nineties came from that. And these kids today, you know, they see their parents or their uncle, aunts or uncles, and they really love it and they want to wear it and celebrities wear it. And so it's, uh, it's been, that's been the biggest change today. What are among your most popular items these days? What are people coming in for specifically? Oh, well, today the t-shirt reigns supreme. Did I say that right? Reign supreme. But I got supreme name in there. <laughs> the t-shirt is the number one item. People, I mean... The whole industry and especially young people, uh, especially like uh, kids in their, or excuse me, males in their 20, 20s, absolutely. Well, girls love t-shirts too. I mean, don't get me wrong. They love t-shirts. T-shirts are just number one. I mean, we've always kind of been like a t-shirt place, but being that I was doing a lot of t-shirts and the t-shirt boom started about 10 years ago. Um, I sell everything, but t-shirts had, has become like about 50% of our business. It's just amazing. And we specialize in music, but, uh, now that was the, one of the initial, 
items that became really popular. People love like the rock music or this classic rock music t-shirts. But lately it's been a lot of popular culture uh, items like movie t-shirts and things like that. And, uh, and as far as music t-shirts, like the rap t-shirt is the biggest, the highest value, which has just gone into the stratosphere. So t-shirts are number one, but I sell everything else. You know, I like to be a full service business. You know, everything from high-waisted pants for ladies and uh, to uh, we sell a lot of sports items, you know, uh, starter jackets, uh, jerseys, things like that. So I like to have a little bit of everything because, you know, you never know how business is going to go. You know, you rely on one thing, you live and die by one item. So how do you curate your collection? Where do you get your items from? Well, um, there's a lot of different methods that uh, people use. Um, I mostly use, um, uh, we use uh, used clothing companies. You know, there are companies that export overseas. Like our extra clothing, after it goes into the thrift store, there's more, there's more than enough clothing for, there's too much clothing just to sell at a thrift store. So the leftover, they, they sell to export companies that, that grade it and then they ship it overseas. And in that process, older stuff, you know, is pulled out or the stuff that's popular, whatever whatever it is. And uh, so I go there and I buy it from these companies. I mean, actually many years ago, before um, New York became like a really in place, there was a lot of um, export used clothing uh, companies in the Bronx and Brooklyn, because it was very cheap rent back then, but there's hardly any around New York today. Okay, so I have to do a lot of traveling so to find them. I see that you have T-shirts hanging behind you where you're sitting right now. Yeah. Um, like, I don't know if I could point, but there's a nice Led Zeppelin. Which one? What, was, what album cover is that? Uh, Houses of the Holy. Houses of the Holy. And there's a Grateful Dead. These are all from the 1990s. And I see the other one. And then the Tupac. Tupac was very, very popular. All the rap stuff is. And then let me see if I get over there. You can see like the Beatles, the Sgt. Pepper. But these are all, you know, these values here probably start about 300 and maybe $1,000 for the Tupac. About between a 300 to $1,000 for those type of 90s t-shirts, yeah. How do you price a t-shirt? How do we price it? It's really yeah. supply and demand. You know, it's, it's, it's a very, it's, it's, you know, many years ago, you couldn't give away a movie t-shirt. You know, like a, a like you know, like t you know, a movie would give away T-shirts at the theater. I mean, a Pulp Fiction T-shirt you could probably an original one you could probably get a thousand dollars for, or more if it's an original given out at a theater. But you know, you have to um, you have to eight you have to date the T-shirt, make sure it's original from the era. Um, you know, you have to know like the fabrics and the tags and. You know, there's a lot of different things you have to learn about, but it's really supply and demand and you have to keep your, your, your ear on the ground as far as to try to find out what, what prices are going for. And, uh, you know, just watch, watch the online auctions, watch online sales, watch when you put something in the store, you put it up for $150 and it sells them a half a day, you know, you, you price it too little. So it, it's, it's really, you have, it's a feeling, you have to judge things by supply and demand and you know, can I get a lot of this or I can get a little of it? You know, I mean, things like Bruce Springsteen. I mean, we charge around $100, $150, but there's 
hundreds of thousands of Bruce Springsteen t-shirts, but there's a big supply and demand for it. Uh, where things like U2, there's thousands of U2 shirts, but nobody wants to wear a U2 t-shirt. Don't ask me why. So those t-shirts you could barely get, you know, barely crack $75 for. You've had your fair share of celebrities who've walked into your shop looking for a vintage, right? Um, I'm just thinking back at Avenue B days. I mean, I can't remember everything, but, um, you know, so, uh, the people from Sonic, you know, the band Sonic Youth, they used to come in. Or, I think they're, I think they're, their practice space was nearby. And I didn't know who they were until I saw pictures later on of them. And then I remember Winona Ryder. Do you remember her? Winona Ryder. She's a fallen angel now. I'm not too sure. <laughs> but she once came in with a driver and the driver was out there waiting while she came in to buy corduroy pants. I mean, this is, you know, a long time ago. Levi corduroy pants were really hip in the 90s, you know, with the grunge look and everything. So we saw a lot of 501s. And so, yeah, like even Avenue B, they would come around. But being on, once we started moving to Third Avenue, then there was a lot more. And then obviously out here, you know, Broadway over here, you know, easy location to get to. Well, I love it. Metropolis Vintage Clothing. Richard, give us the address and give us the website. Metropolis Vintage Online. Metropolis Vintage Online. That's our blog. And then we sell on Etsy. And then we're, we're located at 803 Broadway. We're at, we're between, um, we're at the corner of um, 11th Street on Broadway, right across from Flight Club near Halloween Adventure and just a block away from Strand. So we're on Broadway. We're underneath a big you know, awning, you know, a big uh, scaffolding. So sometimes it's hard to see us, but we're at Broadway and 11th Street. Thank you, Richard. I appreciate it. Take care now. Appreciate the, the time. Richard Colligan is keeping it old school in New York City. And so are our next guests in a way. Mark Kleback and Stephanie Gross are the husband and wife duo behind Wonderville. It's a one-of-a-kind indie arcade gallery and bar in Bushwick, Brooklyn, that just recently reopened after shutting down in the pandemic. You won't find classic arcade games like Pac-Man and Donkey Kong at Wonderville, but you will find unique arcade games made by independent artists. Stephanie, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. Thanks so much for having us. Mark, hello. Hey, how's it going? Going well. So when I was a kid, I would spend a lot of time in the game room of Nathan's in Yonkers, New York, where I grew up. And of course, Nathan's had Donkey Kong and Frogger and Pac-Man. We're not talking about that at Wonderville, right? No, we don't have any of those. Um, but we are inspired by that era. Um, and I think, you know, partially Wonderville was conceptualized because I was like, I miss those places. Talk to me about the inspiration for Wonderville. Yeah, so, I mean, I, I think as a child of the 80s and 90s, you know, my, my childhood involved a lot of birthday parties at roller rinks and arcades. And uh, I remember playing a lot of like, you know, Simpsons multiplayer and like Jurassic Park and all this kind of stuff. And um with the like kind of resurgence of bar arcades, um, I was interested in having a place that people can go to play games, but also showcase new games by people that are making new arcade games. Um, and so that's what Wonderville is. It's, a, it's an arcade bar, but it only features independently made arcade games from the last like five, 10 years. Stephanie, talk to me about your involvement and how you engage with video games growing up. 
Yeah, I did not engage as much as Mark, that's for sure. Um, but I have been fascinated with running businesses as well as uh, all the fabulous bureaucratic nonsense that comes with running a business. So I was very excited to work with Mark on having Wonderful have a, a long-term home and, and a gaming community uh, in one location where people can come and visit and play and be together. What is your background that set you up for working with Wonderville? Yeah, I have uh, my master's in public administration, government studies. Um, I actually work for New York City as well. And uh, before my current position, I worked with consumer affairs where I learned a lot about the process of becoming a legal established bar in New York. Mark, what about your background? My background's in electronics and fabrication. Um, prior to Wonderville, I was actually building arcade cabinets. I've probably built a lot of the, about half the collection that we have at Wonderville. And I also freelance as a creative technologist on the side. So I work on public art installations and uh, advertising projects that involve art and technology. How varied are the games you have at Wonderville? There are probably like 30 games that are at Wonderville. Um, some of them are very, have a very arcade feel. We have like a boat racing game. We have a two versus two kickball game, but we also have like very esoteric games. We have uh, an arcade cabinet called Video Freak, which is um, a collaboration with video artist Alan Riley. And there's no points or levels. You just like turn knobs and see the graphics get crazy. Um, so I like to think of Wonderville as more of an art gallery than an arcade. We have a suggested donation box on the wall, but the games are free to play. So a lot of the stuff that's there, you can't play anywhere else. So uh, we like to think of it as like a unique experience. So you're not putting quarters in any machines. There's no quarters, no. no. Quarters. Stephanie, do you have a favorite game? Uh, I mean, I don't want to get in trouble for having a favorite since they're all fantastic and we know the creators, but the first two that came to mind were Nothing Good Can Come of This, which is a two-player game. Um, you are fighting for a gun and a bullet. What would you call the, the layout? It's like pixel or not pixelated. It's just black and white. It's very black squares, and white. Squares, yeah. And it's uh, really deep and violent game. It's really fun to play. It's extremely addicting. Um, Pre-COVID, pre-pandemic, we had uh, a tournament, I think, like in the, the winter of, uh, oh my gosh, 2020. And we had a lot, we had a great turnout. It was a lot of fun. It was really fun watching people get just as uh, addicted to the game as I do. Uh, my other favorite is also somewhat unconventional, is uh, Line Wobbler, created by Robin Baumgarten who uh, resides in the UK, or right now Berlin. Yeah. Uh, but so ha help me describe. <laughs> Line Wobbler is a one dimensional dungeon crawler. <laughs> it's an LED strip and you play as a green LED and you have to get to the end of the strip uh, and you have a joystick and you could go forward and backward and you can shake the joystick to attack the other pixels in your way. Um, it's really a genius game, um, and Robin only works with LEDs, so he's not, he doesn't actually have anything made with screens, but he has a bunch of games that glow uh, LED orbs and LED pl like uh, 
playgrounds. It's really a cool interface. So for first time visitors of Wonderville, I would tell them there's a game by the bar hidden and you need to try and find it. And all you have to do is try and locate the, the joystick to play it. Um, but otherwise it's, it looks very decorative. It's mm. really fun. So you have two player to how many players? Do you have games for how many altogether? The biggest arcade game we have is called Killer Queen. Um, and unlike a lot of the games at Wonderville, Killer Queen is nationally known. Um, it's a 10 player game, five on five. Uh, and there are very dedicated teams uh, in New York. We've also had people visit Wonderville that are like, I'm from Minnesota, I'm from Portland, and I wanted to meet the New York Killer Queen players. Um, so they, pre-pandemic obviously, would fly all over the country to play in Killer Queen tournaments, and there's all this strategy and they make uniforms. So um, <clears throat> the creators of Killer Queen are a company called Bumble Bear, located in New York, and We've been lucky to collaborate with them for a long time. Very supportive. Yeah, and so um, that cabinet is very big, but it, it takes up a bunch of real estate at the very uh, back of Wonderville. Um, it was it perfectly fit. I remember when we brought it in and we were nervous about, you know, the measurements, were we accurate with the doorway, but it fit perfectly. Hmm. It was meant to be there. You hosted an event in December to raise money to keep Wonderville open, right? Mm -hmm. We did. We did. We we did a fundraiser. I guess Mark, you referred to it almost like a telethon. Yeah. Uh, we so um, in addition to Wonderville, I'm the founder of this nonprofit called Death by Audio Arcade, and that's the group that really builds all the cabinets. And so we had been talking about doing a winter fundraiser at Wonderville, um, and as when the pandemic looked like it was getting better we said maybe we'll have some catering and we'll sell tickets and then slowly it was seeming like we shouldn't have people on site and so we quickly had to kind of rework this into a telethon mm -hmm. fundraiser and so we put together a bunch of interviews um, we pre-recorded some live musical performances by our staff members a lot of them are musically inclined mm -hmm. and um, yeah, on December 20th, we ran a 12-hour fundraiser um, to keep Wonderville open. Um, you know, as you can imagine, uh, rent and bills are have been piling up, and uh, it's really tough to try to make ends meet. So that was really, really helpful um, in getting us across this, this winter uh, time. And you raised $40,000 through that event, right? Yep, that's, that's right, yeah. Mark, tell us more about Death by Audio Arcade and the mission. Yeah, so Death by Audio Arcade was founded at the music venue Death by Audio, uh, which existed in Williamsburg from, I want to say 2005 to 2014. Uh, so it was a warehouse space and um, a music venue as well, and a guitar pedal company, uh, which, which is still operational. You can get Death by Audio guitar pedals. So. You know, I was living in the back in a loft space, and that's where I started building these arcade cabinets. And so we named the nonprofit after Death by Audio. And um, when they closed in 2014, we sort of had six arcade cabinets with no home. And so we got into this, you know, uh, kind of life of this nomadic lifestyle of renting box trucks, uh, setting up galleries with different music venues and uh, places around New York, 
So we would bring our arcades and set them up for a month and have a launch party uh, and then pack them into a box truck and move them to the next place. Uh, and we did that for about four years. Mm -hmm. um, and during that time, we kept building more arcade cabinets. So we, the collection kept growing, even though we didn't have a permanent space. What can you tell me about the world of indie arcade games? Is it a small community, a huge community? It's, it's interesting because it's sort of new. And um, over the last five years, I've seen arcades appear in the Midwest and in California and people that made an arcade game and said, this kind of works in a cabinet. And I think there's a lot of games that, you know, I, I think when you think about video games, you think, oh, you're going to sell this on a console. You're going to sell this on PlayStation or you're going to sell this for PC, you know, for people to play at home. But some games just don't work like that. Some games are made to play with a bunch of people, you know, in public. And um, those games aren't really marketable to one person sitting on the couch, right? So uh, I've, I started seeing, especially with the NYU Game Center, like people making new arcade games that are really fun. And, um, you know, I started going to these events where they would showcase those games and meet more of that community. And I do think it's growing. Um, and now like there's a podcast that's in Minnesota that talks to new arcade makers and, and other arcade bar owners. And there's a movement called Alt Control that is about alternative interfaces like Line Wobbler. Uh, so it's, it's a big community and it's growing. Um, it's probably not as big as like arcades in the 80s, but I think it's getting there. Mm -hmm. Well, there's certainly something to be said for the camaraderie of being in the arcade compared to just being at home in your living room or basement and playing video games. Absolutely. And I think we're, we sort of were moving pre-pandemic to like, let's go play games in public again. Let's go to a space and play video games because it's like, it's nice to be around people, you know? Mm -hmm. And um, I don't know. I still, I, there's always going to be a place for like sitting on the couch playing Halo by yourself. And I think that industry is not going away, but I'm more interested in like the social aspect of gaming. I would think after being cooped up for so long, people are going to be wanting that pretty badly after all of this is over. Something that happened, which was really serendipitous, was in December, one of the Killer Queen players facilitated an outdoor Killer Queen cabinet, which was 10 individual controllers that were all wired with 30 feet of cable that we could set up in our backyard. And it was really cold, but people came and played Killer Queen in the backyard because they ha haven't played it, you know, in eight months. And so I know the hunger is there. How would you describe your clientele who is coming out to Wonderville? We have a pretty good, supportive, local uh, bar crowd. Um, people that just live in the neighborhood and they, they stop by and what's cool is you can say like, here's our drink menu, but also there's a free arcade over there. The name Wonderville. Who coined the name Wonderville? <laughs> yeah, so that's where um, the Death by Audio Arcade um, group, you know, when we told them we wanted to establish a, like a, a proper location and obviously wanted their support, we uh, teamed up with them and came up with a very long list of names and word association and what these words invoke. Um, I still to this day do not know 
who exactly put the wonder with the Ville together. But once they did, we really couldn't go back. We felt like it was so perfect. Um, you know, we love the idea that like Wonderville certainly does have a lot of initial concepts, but that we're still growing and always open to, like Mark said, new communities that we can collaborate with and have fun with. Yeah, and I think personally, I didn't really want to have arcade or <laughs> yeah. arcade anywhere in the name because it's you, 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 you get this like stigma about you. I'm literally boxed in. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so uh, we wanted it to be whimsical. We yeah. wanted it to not you not to think about anything in particular. Yeah. Like I think I was pushing to call the bar Moon Landing. I was pushing to name it after our cat. Yeah, but like we didn't. I, I felt like we'd get a lot of conspiracy theorists that would be like, what do you think about the moon landing? Yeah, and, and not enough cat-themed games yet to really go that direction. Also, you were just not into naming it after your cat. Stephanie, what's the name of your cat? So she was the first employee at Death by Audio, the venue. And so depending on who you ask, she has many names from Jamoka, Polly, short for Pollyanna, um, what am I forgetting? Honeybeans. Honey oh my goodness. Honeybeans was a big one. Yeah. So I was, I was, and she's a calico. So something, you know, could have been calico related. Yeah. So any listeners, if they want to open another bar, that's cat themed, give me a call. <laughs> Did you two marry before or after Wonderville? Uh, I, I definitely used it as an opportunity to, <laughs> you know, uh, after we opened. I mean, we opened in May and we got married in November. Thanks to you both. Really appreciate it. Mark Kleback and Stephanie Gross are the owners of Wonderville. You can find out more at wonderville.nyc. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. I'm George Bodarki. My thanks to producer Matty Bristow. Our music is courtesy of bensound.com. Thank you so much for listening.